Welcome back to Tales of the Talmud. It's great to have this uh, mighty group joining us again for our Talmud conversation. Uh, as always, I'm happy to start off with a brief refresher of what it is we're talking about. We'll do it a little faster than the last time since last time we were coming back from a longer break. But I feel like it's always a worthwhile thing to uh, keep our eye on the prize, so to speak, to remember what it is that we're looking at here. So, the Talmud. Does anybody remember what the Talmud is? I was going to say, if anybody else wants to share some of my spiel, you're welcome to jump in. We can do this in a collaborative sort of way. You do it so well, though. Oh, Grant, you flatter me. The rabbi's interpretation of uh, laws? The rabbi's interpretations, it's laws, it's, what was that? The longest book written, what, in ancient times, maybe even in modern times. Longest written work of antiquity. antiquity. Um, It's about, and I don't say book because it's actually um, 63 tractates, um, which are, you know, so like 63 different books. It's sort of like an encyclopedia Britannica if you ever see a full one on the shelf. Um, and it is, that's right, it is the longest written work from the ancient world by about four times. Uh, the next closest thing was some uh, Roman or Greek uh, legal code, I think. The reason it's so long it is... It preserves all of the arguments, pro, con... Exactly right. The reason it is so verbose is that it does preserve all of the opinions, not just the law that they arrive at, whatever legal decision that they arrive at, but it preserves all the other guys and everybody else who thought something different, and it preserves all of uh, the directions of their arguments and all of the uh, ways in which they argue. But in addition to legal material, the other, that's about sort of genre-wise, it's half of what the Talmud is, the other half of what it is, and I'm not talking lengthwise, but more the two genres. The other one is uh, stories, legends, uh, which is really what we're covering here. What's the makeup of laws and stories? Proportion? I don't know off the top of my head. Um, roughly. If I had to guess roughly, and I could look this up for next time, um, I think it's probably even, it might be two-thirds law, one-third story, although some of the stories do go on at great length. So, And then there's sort of a gray area where um, you might wonder to what extent does a legal discussion sort of veer into story when you're hearing about the way that they argue with one another. Um, now, it's not totally cleanly delineated, sort of piece of what I was saying there, because this is, it's always been known as the oral Torah. It started out as a series of conversations, um, and it took probably some centuries before it began to be written down and transcribed and preserved in that way, and so there are places where you'll see that orality of it preserved. You'll see some piece like in the oven of Achnai that, uh, about the snake oven that we learned way back when. They say that this cubit, that this uh, carob tree uprooted itself and walked 100 uh, cubits, some say 400 cubits. It's the sound of these guys all actually sitting around having uh, this conversation about it, and you hear that conversation come through. So, and, yeah. Um, is it the Mishnah that's the laws and the opinions and the Gemara's stories? Um, it's not quite delineated that way, but the Talmud, you're correct, is composed of the Mishnah and the Gemara. Those are the big pieces of it. The Mishnah is the first part of it. Mishnah is mostly in Mishnaic Hebrew, go figure. Um, the Mishnah was uh, redacted, canonized, sealed by the year 220 by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who was sort of their political leader at the time. So we're getting the very beginnings of Rabbinic Judaism, so very close to around the destruction of the temple, um, all the way up to about 220 is the Mishnah. So it's really the beginning. 
The Gemara is what comes after, sort of expanding. 220 BCE. CE. Thank you. Yes, 220 CE. Um, and the Gemara comes after the Mishnah to sort of explain and follow up on what the Mishnah is talking about, to explicate it to a greater degree. Now, was there a continuum or, or was there a, a hiatus in time between the Mishnah and the Gemara? We think it was pretty continuous um, that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and his Sanhedrin, which was the rabbinic assembly at that time, they sort of sealed the Mishnah in its form around 220. Uh, and it seems like pretty quickly then the conversation expanded to, well, what did the Mishnah mean? What was it referring to? What is this piece about? What is that piece about? And so the Gemara winds up taking it and sort of double-clicking on a lot of these themes and expanding it. So, And is this all Babylonian or is this... Excellent question. That takes us to another piece of the Talmud. So the Talmud, there are actually two Talmuds. There is the Babylonian Talmud, the Bavli, and there is the Jerusalem Talmud, uh, sometimes called the Palestinian Talmud or uh, the Yerushalmi. So the interesting thing was that clearly there were these two communities who were sort of writing and learning and they had their scholarship sort of in parallel to one another. And they used to visit one another. We had uh, we have records of scholars going from one to the other and their argument that would sort of go round and round and back and forth. One of the big differences between those two Talmuds as we have them today is the Bavli, the Babylonian, uh, was probably, I'll put it like this, even after it was redacted, it was probably, it, we seem to have the thumbprint of later generations impacting it much more. So it seems... It's, first of all, a little easier to understand. Some of it's a little bit later material, because you can tell they've been tweaking with it and messing with it um, centuries probably after the Yerushalmi. So because it reflects more, uh, at least a more recent understanding of some of these Talmudic ideas, a lot of places uh, default to using the Babylonian Talmud in Talmud study. Although the interesting thing, because it's been less uh, sort of tweaked in that sense, the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem one, is sometimes used by scholars if they want to get at what they would consider perhaps a more original voice of it. Um, and they have slight variations and differences and such, but those are the two Talmuds. Um, but they're pretty similar. The big question, I believe, trying to remember what our rabbinic intern said was the most recent word on when the Talmud was redacted. I'm thinking he said it was like 500 or something. Because last I, when I was in rabbinical school, we heard five or 600 or so. It's not entirely clear when the Gemara and thus the entire Talmud was redacted. But what's interesting is we do have this layer of a final editorial voice, which we call the Stam, sort of like the just so, you know, the, the voice that is. And that sort of anonymous voice is woven through it as essentially the last word on a lot of these legal things. It might say, for instance, if there's a legal argument or conflict, which side we follow, even though we don't know exactly who the Stam was or what school uh, exactly created it. So those that's what we have about Talmud. Any other questions or thoughts? or um, Welcome. Come on in. Um, any other thoughts or questions or anything? So was it originally in Aramaic and, and Old Hebrew? Okay, so the Mishnah was largely in Mishnaic Hebrew. A lot of the Gemara is in Aramaic. Um, although in the Gemara there is some Hebrew as well. Clearly they were versed in it and they were familiar with it. Um, and that reminds me, I should also say, and sort of the way in which rabbis make their arguments is to cite some piece of either Tanakh, which is Hebrew Bible, or Torah. 
Um, the way that they rhetorically use these things, sometimes they will lift them violently out of their own context and perhaps even use them in counterintuitive ways, but it's sort of the, their internal logic of their discourses to use um, our sources in that way. So that's how it is that they make their points known. Other questions about what it is we're looking at? Because if not, perhaps we'll dive right in. Like I said, I figured today would be a shorter introduction to Talmud. All right, so I'm going to pass out what it is we're looking at today. We are about to embark. Keep one for myself and hear the rest of them. We're about to embark in what I think is going to be a three-part series. Um, And if you miss one, it's okay. We'll recap. Um, This first part will be a little bit disconnected from the other ones. But before I jump in, just a word about Talmud and about rabbinic Judaism. In the wake of the destruction of the Second Temple... Rabbinic Judaism and the rabbis were basically trying to create an entirely new Jewish world and landscape and context. I mean, their relationship with God as we had it through the great temples in Jerusalem, through sacrificial worship and the priesthood, all of those things had been obliterated and severed. And so suddenly it was up to them to figure out how are we going to have a relationship with God if all of that was gone? Who were our communal leaders going to be? As it had been the Kohanim, it had been the priests. So... That destruction that takes place in Jerusalem in the year 70, uh, it really both is a low point and and an incredible catastrophe for the Jewish people, and it gave rise to centuries of creativity and generativity. And so the Talmud in this sense, sort of this beginning of rabbinic Judaism, is in some ways the creation of a new Judaism. There are those, I've heard the argument made, I'm not sure I'm going to make it myself, but I've heard the argument made that Judaism probably starts with the rabbis and the Talmud, that what came before could be described as uh, ancient Israelite civilization or worship or something like that, but Judaism sort of as we have it is a function of the rabbis and their work together. Um, So it's hard for me to uh, overstate just what a huge moment that was, those destructions in the year 70. So I thought, why don't we actually look at that moment, at that shift, that transition, that time. So we're actually over the coming, this session and the coming sessions, we're going to look at what happened in the rabbinic understanding. How was it that the temple was destroyed? What took place? Um, We'll talk some of the history and some of it, but it's interesting to see the ways in which The rabbis draw their own lessons and their own moral understanding of what's going on in the world from that series of events. So, this is going to be the first part of a series. Again, if you happen to miss one, that's okay. You know, we'll of course be posting these online and you can recap or just come meet with me and I'll be happy to tell you if you miss anything in the series. But this will be a a multi-part series all about what happened with the Second Temple and the rabbis. So... Let's see. Why don't we go ahead and break into our customary chevrutot, this traditional way of studying and learning. Uh, Chevruta sort of comes out of this Aramaic construct for friend, chaver. Uh, It's this idea that you study in pairs, twos or threes or whatever. It's It's a very, very yeshivish sort of traditional way to learn this. So I love for us to begin in chevruta, and then we will jump back into the bigger group conversation in, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes after that. So do you all want to break up somehow in a group of two? And uh, We're returning from our Chevruta's uh, study and learning now. Um, as my 
triumvirate over there points out that, yeah, this is confusing. Uh, there's a reason this is confusing. Talmud is, uh, contains some of the most difficult and challenging texts, not just thematically, but even uh, in terms of understanding it and getting to the bottom of it uh, that Jewish tradition has. So if it's not easy, you're not alone. I promise you that. Um, but I think that somewhere in between the ambiguities and some of the confusion, there is great wisdom and great Torah and real beauty with some of this. So I look forward to unpacking all of this with you. So let's start at the beginning, <coughs> shall we? Somebody want to read for us? I will. Go for it. Rabbi Yochanan said, What illustrates the verse, Happy is the man who always fears, but he who hardens his heart falls into Okay, we'll take just that much. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Now, this fears, does fears refer to not fear? But when they used to say you should fear God. About being God-fearing. Yes, exactly. How about this? I'll open up a uh, Tanakh and we'll look at it. Because if you look, I have included down there that uh, particular reference. The book of Proverbs. And I have a question yeah, about... Would you move up the soil a little bit so we can hear you better? I mean... Yeah. Down there. Yeah, that's fine. Most of the people are down on this end. Yeah, here. How's that? Is that any better? All right. So, and, I and I'll speak question. up, too. I have a question about that, too, Nick. Okay, while I'm looking for Proverbs, you go ahead with that question. So, in the portion bow, mm -hmm. it says, obviously I'm paraphrasing, mm -hmm. don't harden your heart so much like Pharaoh don't harden your heart, always leave it open to mm -hmm. the possibility of blah, 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 mm -hmm. or whatever. Does this have anything to do with that portion that says, he who hardens his heart falls into evil? <coughs> Does that have anything to do with bow at all? Does it have anything to do with bow at all? So I want to say it's not a direct citation, but the thing is, of course they would have known about Parashat Bo and they would have been thinking about it. It would have been part of the whole rigmarole from the beginning. So you can bet that even if they're not citing it directly, it's in the back of their minds with it. So I just looked up the verse itself. Um, let's see. Ashrei Adam Mephached Tamir. Yeah, it's one of the Torah portions that just went past Parashat Bo. We're talking about... Yeah. Go ahead. For the whole group, yeah. it's. Uh... She asked, what is Bo? Mm -hmm. And aside from Bo Jackson, the baseball player, <laughs> uh, Bo is uh, apparently the first word of a, a Torah portion. Right. Because each Torah portion, and most of you know this, I'm sure, mm -hmm. has a name, and the name is invariably the first significant word in that portion. So what's interesting, though, is that the Hebrew, umaksheh, is uh, it's not the same word for harden that the, that, that, that the Torah portion uses. That has to do with kaved, uh, for making it heavy. Um, kasheh is literally like hard, um, like a material or something like that. So it's a slightly different word they're using. So they're probably, it's probably on their minds, but they probably wouldn't make that... Uh, connection too firmly because it's a slightly different word. Although that theme we get here um, sort of runs throughout it, yeah. for if sure. If we're talking about uh, portion bow, I'd like to know what's in it. Bow. 
Bo el paro. Go to Pharaoh is what God says to Moses. Is what, or literally, oh, so come to Pharaoh. Come to it, it means to come, to come in. It's almost it's interior rather than exterior. It's not say or lech. Um, to go out to, but, but it's come into Pharaoh. Order to go to Pharaoh. Exactly, and uh, Aspert. So it's the middle of sort of the Exodus, the Passover story, is where we are. Um, I understand there was confusion about our start time. Apologies for that. So we're happy to have you joining in uh, right here. So we get this quote from Rabbi Yochanan. Um, it's pretty straightforward in terms of what the Hebrew is in there. You know, I, I, this is a pretty straight-ahead translation. Was the fear what Carol said? Like God-fearing or scared? It's not yirah or nora or those kinds of God. It's much more scared, mifached. Um, it is? Yes. I wouldn't have thought that. Me either. So, that's an interesting so thing. that the person's always afraid? <laughs> So I'll also tell you that the JPS translates it as uh, "happy is the man who is always anxious," yeah. which that's interesting. Why not? So I, I interpret fear as living within a structure, and so if, if you're living within a structure, then that can be a kind of happiness, a kind of contentedness. You know, I think the I see nice. living within a structure and happy within that structure. Mm-hmm. But if you harden your heart to it, which and it's a way of saying, I, I don't recognize it, it don't mean nothing to me, mm-hmm. then you fall into evil. Very that's nice. Yeah. I like that drosh. It, it, it kind of reminds me of sort of that axiom that in some ways the happiest kids are the ones who have boundaries, mm-hmm. whose parents put give them boundaries and give them limits. Um, more secure in that way. Um, that's a lovely drush of uh, that Proverbs line, because it's an interesting line. It's not necessarily intuitive. Happy is the one who always fears or is always anxious, but he who hardens his heart falls into evil. Like, It's interesting the different things that are being compared and contrasted there. Um, so it's a little bit counterintuitive, but I like that drush a lot of that. Other questions on just this first line? <laughs> Where does it say bow, or did you say this comes from? It doesn't. Co- it's uh, disconnected from it. That was. Um, yeah. No, and you're right to do that. Um, always right. To be the portion when my mom died, so I looked it up to see what it was years mm-hmm. ago, and then it just stuck with me. So. Zichronali May her memory be for a blessing. And you are. There you go. So, and. And you're always right to bring Torah into this and whatever Torah linkages. Whatever, um, I had an instructor at RRC, Rabbi Joel Hecker, who talked about these things as being like a pinball machine. And the more you know, the more lights up uh, when the ball bounces around into things. So whatever That's lights up. So whatever lights up for you, I invite you to bring into this or bring to the discussion. So Bo was not from this specifically, Bo was this other piece of Torah. So, um, any other questions about that piece before we continue? Well, yes? Uh, happy is a man who always fears. I'm thinking um, when you're afraid, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're in a state of feeling guilty, maybe. Mm-hmm. And, um, and therefore, uh, you will never do anything wrong if you're constantly feeling guilty. Interesting. And so you'll always be happy because you, it'll keep you, that fear will keep you from doing anything wrong. And so you'll be happy. Okay. That's sort of security. I don't know if it's guilt or caution. I think it's there's the ambiguity there is certainly an invitation to drosh in this way. The text isn't, you know, crystal clear in terms of exactly what that mifached, that pachad in that way is. Um, 
but yeah, you're certainly welcome and encouraged to drosh it and slice it a couple of different ways. That's what this is all about, for sure. Yeah. All right. So, welcome. Um, so, we will continue. Who wants to pick up the next sentence or two? The destruction of Jerusalem came through a Kamsa and a Bar Kamsa in this way. Okay, let's just take that much, because we had questions about Kamsa. What does Kamsa mean? And there are extra sheets over there if you want to pass them down. Um, so, one source is that the root Kamats Kuf Mem Tsadi means to enclose with the hand, to grasp, uh, to close shut. Um, it's a tight-fisted gun. Actually, that's exactly one of the uh, one of the uh, meanings. What? Is um, somebody who is a uh, a miser, for in- instance, in Hebrew, a kamtsan, somebody who is tight-fisted in that sense. Is that So I'm not telling you exactly what kamsa is because there are a lot of different meanings. So miserly is sort of one of those connections. Um, another, uh, for instance, Aramaic piece uh, suggests that it might be connected to kamia, which is an amulet in Aramaic, um, or the Arabic kama'a, which is about taming or, curb, or curbing or bridling in this sense. Um, if you rearrange the letters just a little bit, as often happened in these things, you also get to grasp, you know, to physically grab or to wrinkle. And it's also close to kemach, which is a flower ground very uh, finely. Now, we have the miserly piece that Tom uh, jumped to as well. Kamsa in an Aramaic dictionary written by Jastro is identified as also a locust, um, as a little scraper, a collector, or a snail, which Jastro thinks might be a mistranslated piece from something else, or a slug of some kind. Um, now, there are other drashot that connects these kamtsas to locusts, but uh, Adin Steinsaltz, who is this famous uh, rabbi and interpreter and uh, drasher of Talmud, uh, he suggests that the name kamsa comes from Greek, that it's a cognate of kampsos, meaning elegant and refined, but with a more negative meaning, uh, crafty, mm. tricky. So that's why I said that Kamsa, that name itself is rich enough that I didn't want to give an exact translation. Um, so we have Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, which is son of Kamsa, like Bar Mitzvah, um, is the whole thing. So Kamsa could be a lot of different things. But if it's a, if Kamsa is in a good way, mm-hmm. I would think that son of that good thing would also be good, but in this sense, that bar comes as an enemy. That's right. He's super crafty and not good. And tricky, that's right. This bar kamsa is bad news. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to think about, you know, if you were to drosh it as these were locusts or slugs or something like that, there's a certain poetic uh, quality, this idea that the destruction of Jerusalem came through a slug and a son of a slug. Or a locust and a son of a locust. Like, the combination of this sort of small and inconsequential with the destruction of the world as they know it uh, is its own certain uh, literary device, if you will. Um, But certainly the miserly piece about being tight-fisted is kind of interesting, particularly given that he offers to pay all this stuff. But what am I doing? I'm preempting the story. So who wants to continue with the next sentence? Yeah, go ahead, Carol. 
as far as Ooh. Like, 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 that's a good question, too. Because this is now the second piece that we get sort of linking us to Passover um, in that way. So that's interesting. Let's see. I don't think... Again, I'm not sure that it's the exact wording that we're meant to see it as being the same hail. And... Yeah, exactly. You're doing your ten plagues. Pestilence. All the good stuff, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, so, okay, locusts, here we go. Our bet are the locusts of Passover. That's right. I was trying to remember exactly which one it is. So it's different than a kamsa. Um, but again, you can be sure that they had that story in the back of their mind. The rabbis knew that story very well, and it would have been on their on the tips of their tongues as well. So... Um, so you could look at either the linkage of it or that they're trying to davka separate it out because it's a different word for it. You could slice it either way, actually, that it's similar or it's different in that way. That's the ambiguity, the fun ambiguity of it. Other questions about just that first destruction of Jerusalem. Audrey asked a question, actually, earlier. She asked, wait, which temple? So I'm happy to give a word about that, too. Right now we're looking at the second temple. First temple was, this is the Temple of Solomon, was destroyed by um, the Babylonians, why am I blanking on this, by the Babylonians in 586. King Cyrus, yes, BCE. King Cyrus of the Persians conquered the Babylonians and brought the Jews back, let them return. So they rebuilt the temple. This was then the second temple. They dedicated it, I wrote down some dates and such, they dedicated it in 516 BCE. It was then defiled in 167 by Antiochus IV, who put up a statue of Zeus, banned Brit Milah, and started sacrificing pigs there to Zeus. Um, this was rededicated in the year 160, following the success of, bingo, the Maccabean Revolt. So, And that is the Hanukkah story that we have. So after the Maccabean Revolt, they rededicated it. It stood until it was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70. So we're in and around that time right now. Um, does that answer your question? CE. Still CE. Yes. So we've gone from BCE to CE. Um, we've, we've crossed over the year zero in the midst of this. Other questions? All right. So we can keep going then. Who wants to pick up the next uh, sentence or two? Certain men have a friend named Kamsa, an enemy named Bar Kamsa. He once threw a party and said to his servant, Go and bring Kamsa. The servant accidentally went and brought Bar Kamsa instead. He came and found him sitting. Unclear antecedents. He <laughs> said, What's this? That man is an enemy of this other man. And there's a footnote. What do you want here? Get out. All right, so we'll take that much. Questions, responses, thoughts? <clears throat> Reasonably straightforward, under then your uh, antecedent issue. Um, yeah, you don't quite know. Well, the reserve, which him? him? He, Barcomsa, came and found him, the man, sitting. So I would suggest that it's the other way around, that they're at this party. He, the guy throwing the party, 
uh, comes uh, and finds, finds sees his enemy Barkamsa there mm. and reacts um, yeah, strongly. But <laughs> no, 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 no. That um, you don't get to just get off that easy. Anytime you read it differently from me, that's a good thing. That is a positive thing. I always quote um, my Rav from growing up and my teacher Steve Sager. He always used to ask, "What's your movie version of this?" And this is in North Carolina, so it's not even like a Hollywood thing or anything out here. But he would always ask, "What's your movie version of it?" Because sharing that uh, forces you to examine your own assumptions about it and examine what it is you think is happening and what you see happening in this text. So actually sharing your movie version of what this looks like is actually a really helpful way of going about and thinking about Talmud. So I appreciate you sharing a little piece of what I might suggest is your movie version of it. Um, did other people read this differently or see it? All right. That's, fine. That's fair, too. Other questions or thoughts? So he came and found him sitting. <laughs> who, who are these guys? He, the servant, came and found the party thrower sitting? No, the, uh, that's what I thought. And then Rabbi Renner okay. said, no, it's in his opinion. I wanted to suggest. He wanted to suggest that he, the party thrower, okay. came to, into the party. He was fashionably oh, okay. late. And found his enemy. And found his enemy sitting there. Okay. Okay. Bar Kamsa. I think given the sequence that comes after that, I think that's how it's supposed to read. Although I did see another translation online that suggested that the servant suddenly gets upset about it. So, look, people are slicing this different ways. So uh, any time that we have that ambiguity, I want to suggest don't be frustrated. This is an invitation for you to read it lots of different ways. This is an invitation to the poetic and literary joy of learning Talmud. Um, who wants to pick up? I, I yeah, go ahead. Thought. Uh, so, so Barkhamsa was invited to this party. Yes, accidentally. No, accidentally. But when he, but when he was invited accidentally, he knew the, who he's go, whose party he was going to. Yes. So he says, "Hey, this is cool. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm crashing the party here." So, what was Barkhamsa thinking in accepting this invitation? Right. One could be. Let's think. What are the possibilities? One could be he's going to stick it to his enemy. He's going to crash the party. Wait, wait, no, no, but that's Grant, right, go ahead. Because, um, it, it doesn't say that, 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 that Bar Kamsa was an enemy of the host. Bar Kamsa well, yeah, was an enemy, mm, an uh, enemy of the Kamsa. Yes, it does. It says no, a certain no. man had a friend named Kamsa, right. an enemy of Bar Kamsa. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and he's the party thrower. Maybe Sorry. he was no worries. So all the all the uh, it's totally cool. It's all part of it. Yeah, go ahead. Maybe he was so excited that the certain man was gonna then be tolerant and accept him as a pal now. So that's the other possibility. Either Barkhamsa did this to stick it to the guy, or he thought this was an overture, a peace gesture, an olive branch. And then he kept offering and offering. Yep. Oh, it's so Sad. It is sad. It is sad indeed. Other questions about this before we continue into that into that piece? All right, go ahead. Somebody pick up for us. A brave volunteer. Where are we? <laughs> we are at Barkhamsa responded. Yeah. Barkhamsa responded. Since I am already here, let me stay, and I will pay you for whatever I eat and drink. He said, I won't. Barkhamsa replied, then let me pay you half the cost of the party. No, said the other, then let me pay for the whole party. He still said no, 
And he grabbed him by the arm and threw him out. Okay. So the, the guy he's throwing the party is, is the hard-hearted guy. Because this bar comes and comes and says, hey, you know, I'll pay for what I'm eating. Don't Let me pay my way. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and she yeah, says, okay, then, I'll pay for half the party. Mm-hmm. No, I'll pay for the whole party. Yeah, but then him. he went and stuck it to him at the end, so he was hard on too. Well, well, he got thin-skinned. We know about people getting thin-skinned in revenge. We don't have any background as to why this all happened here. You know, what was their relationship before? What, maybe he killed his wife for all we know. I, I don't just... We don't know why they're enemies. I was sad. We don't even know how they, they could be related. They could be... And who is... Who is Compton? Where... Yeah, whatever happened to Compton in this thing? <laughs> he never even shows up. No, it could be father and son, or... No, they could. Actually. No, all right. They're probably well. It's an interesting Our question. Could probably the son of his friend. Could be, um, or like that's a possibility. Or they're just families with the same name, because you know there were a lot of different people. Hey, it was you know, a pretty small town. <laughs> <laughs> Not that small if you're talking about Jerusalem. But yeah, go ahead, Stephen. Um, those kind of offers sound like they're more insulting than they are. Interesting. Say more. Yeah. So Sense of, oh, you know, okay, you don't want me here. I'll pay for the food. I'll or, buy you out. I'll buy, you know, if it's really bothering you that much to me, that's, that's like overstepping. Is that because we know he's an enemy? Uh, or yeah. he's just, like being poor? Like uh-huh. if you think oh. about, um, even though someone who, who's rich and might buy their way into something. Um, sorry, <laughs> sorry. But... <laughs> um, <laughs> Like a young person, like a middle schooler, like they would try anything to be accepted. Right, but but typically people don't throw parties expecting expecting to be reimbursed or to be or right. get something from it. You know, just yeah. well, they may to get something from. Well, maybe, yeah, but not certainly not money. <laughs> The way you, uh, you you read that out reminds me of a time when I was in college, and there was a guy who used to live in the house that I lived in, and he came back, and he now worked for a very big investment bank, and he came back, and he got really just outrageously drunk and was breaking things, and every time people complained to him, he pulled out his wallet and threw $100 on the floor. Um, it's just disgusting behavior, but... It's sort of, you know, to have you drosh it the way you did kind of reminds me of this guy, actually. Um, doing this thing where you're saying, fine, you got a problem with it, I'll just throw money at you, you know. It's, uh, there is perhaps, you know, you could read Barkhamta as being sincere and actually wanting to um, make peace in it, or you could read it as having a, a darker side to it. Sure, I think that's absolutely an interesting way to, uh, to drosh that. Other thoughts about just having gone this far? The him getting bounced from the party. All right, so we'll continue on then. I'll have to pick it up after he gets thrown out. Unceremoniously. Said Barkham says, since the rabbis were sitting there and didn't stop him, this shows that they agreed with him. In that case, I'll go and inform against them to the government. Okay, let's just take that much for a moment. Question. Thoughts? Now it gets nasty. So he's saying, the Jews hate me, so screw them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let me also well, emphasize... So was he not Jewish? Well, this is where I want to take a step back from the Jews. At the time, 
of the Mishnah and this sort of early stuff, Judaism, if you want to call it that, was incredibly variegated. There were so many different kinds and groups and types. You have the Pharisees who would eventually become rabbinic Judaism. You had the Sadducees and the sort of uh, the, the priesthood. Um, you have what we call the Essenes, this group that was very obsessed with ritual purity and marched out into the desert, and we don't know what happened to them, but we did find their scrolls, and now we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, the sect at Qumran, uh, who was obsessed with this rich ritual purity. That was another group. Um, we have the early Christians as well, who probably, I've heard it suggested that until before the Council of Nicaea in 300-something CE, um, they probably saw themselves as being pretty similar to Jews, and they used to have even theological arguments back and forth in these early churches and synagogues, drawing Isaiah and Jeremiah about whether Christ was the one or not. Um, but they were close enough that they could share the same texts to have an argument with one another. Um, on top of that, then you have the politics of the moment. We're going to get much more into the different sort of factions, but you have the the Kanaim, these zealots. Who you hear about. You have the Sicarii, who were this cloak and dagger bunch who uh, were very much like the ninjas or the hashashin of um, the Muslim era, these shadowy assassins that were actually killers. Um, you have a group called the Biryoni, which seem to be sort of these militia or these thugs in the place. Um, so you have this wide range, this huge cast of characters there. So to say that the Jews did this, it's tough to say because there's such a huge range of who would have been on the scene there and who would have been part of it. And they did even clash with one another at different times. Um, Kamtza, or Bar Kamtza rather, seems to be putting this at the feet of the rabbis. So the very early rabbis were thinking, maybe, you know, maybe even the Pharisees, if you were to look at a specific group. So whoever these people are, they seem to have had the early rabbis, or at least a group of them at this party. Enough of a group that the silence of this group uh, is read by Barkhamsa to be assent in that sense. Questions, thoughts, responses? So so in the original, it, it says the Jews are rebelling against you? It, it, it uses that word? Yes. Then he takes it that far. Um, well, why don't you go ahead and read that sentence? Go ahead, because we didn't even get there. The, the, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. Hang on. Before we get there. Well, this... This sentence that we just read, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, since they were silent, that shows they agreed. I mean, this isn't a, a, a unique representation of this parable that, that you, you shall not sit idly by when something bad is going down. Don't do that. Yes. Um, we have that commanded to us in Torah about do not... Um, suffer the sin of your neighbor, that you're supposed to rebuke them, reproach them. Um, so this is pretty bad if it, if, it, if it really went down that way. Looks pretty bad. Especially if they were rabbis, they should have known better. I, I'm just a little curious here, yeah. though. If this guy went and talked to the emperor, so the emperor was in town that day? No, probably not. Um, <laughs> well, here's a question, and actually, as I translated this, I was thinking, hmm, I'm not sure I should have translated it that way. Because it could have been King uh, Agrippus, or it could have been the actual Roman emperor. Now, the rabbis, in their tellings of these things, they have no problem with characters sort of whisking away through time and space to places and people that surely they could not have known. There's a great story that I don't know if we've learned this together, but it was um, 
as they say, Alexander of Macedonia, so Alexander the Great, having a debate with the rabbis about something. Clearly, Alexander the Great was not debating with the rabbis. There's no historical reason to believe that. But the rabbis in their discourse have um, aren't afraid to sort of put these big historical figures who are part of their landscape right in the middle of the drama. So, That's so fanciful. Yeah, it is. It is so fanciful. It's kind of cool the way in which they are embellishing, perhaps exaggerating, um, but they're also in touch with the broader world and what's going on at the time. Um, I think it's pretty cool. So. Well, it's kind of like the play where Freud meets Einstein. Yeah. I can't remember the name of it. Exactly. That's a great example. <laughs> a play with Freud talking to Einstein. It's very rabbinic in that sense. Or my own fantasy that Moses and Odysseus were acquainted because after all, you know, Odysseus lands in, in Egypt. Um, and who's the emperor going to send to meet him? I mean, the pharaoh's going to send, you know, a prince to meet with this, this Greek king. Right. So, Tom, when you get around to writing that Midrash, share with me. I will look forward to seeing it. Tom Elias' Midrash of Odysseus and Moshe. I love it. Um, and does anybody remember when we were reading Rabbi Akiva in here? This is a while ago. Moses is up on Mount Sinai tie, and watching God tie crowns on the letters of the Torah, and God whisks him through time and space to sit in the back row of Rabbi Akiva's Beit Midrash. So the rabbis are saying Moses got to see Rabbi Akiva teaching. Um, so again, talk about, you know... Per- didn't learn much, did it? it was, well, not that I want to totally rehash that, but actually Moses' Moses's response was, wow, this guy is such a great teacher, why on earth would you give the Torah to me when you have a brilliant scholar like this, was what they said about Moses in the classroom of Rabbi Akiva. Um, it's a complex story. Uh, I invite you to go on KI Tunes, our podcast place and go look through some of the previous sessions about Tales of the Talmud. You can go get a recap on Rabbi Akiva. Um, so let's continue. Wait, yeah, go ahead. Question. Go ahead. Yes. What did you say? Robert. That um, the rabbis made a mistake by not saying anything? Absolutely. So what if they were... Um, they didn't stop him, but they didn't not stop him. And maybe they just, maybe they, the rabbis, because they were so smart, knew the situation between the man and Bar They knew Bar wasn't a great person, dude, whatever. And the man threw him out of the party, and they thought, all right, let them handle it. We're not, we don't need to interfere. Let them handle it. So you could interpret it that way. That's not the way I read it. So, so if the rabbis had mediated it, yeah, then the temple wouldn't have been destroyed. Maybe, maybe <laughs> it's a possibility. Um, That's certainly what Bar said. Sounds like he would try to convince you of. Yep. If these guys had treated me okay. I wouldn't have gone to the emperor. I wouldn't have done this. If they'd done the right thing in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Um, you do get a certain self-piety um, from yeah, Bar Kamsa in what he's saying. No, he might have had some other reasons to cause trouble. But. Mm-hmm. Now, the other interesting thing, a lot of times the rabbis talk about what caused the destruction of the temple, and they say it very simply, two words, sinat chinam, free hatred. They talk about that a lot, but they only tell the whole story in great granular detail here. Um, 
But if you want to think about it, I mean, that's interesting from a couple of standpoints. One, who is hating who? Where is the hatred? And what is that about? And then the second thing that's interesting is they don't put it at the doorstep of Rome. Um, in a way, it forces them to take responsibility for it, but it also reads them as having a lot more power in the situation than perhaps they actually historically did. So it's an interesting thing to sort of look at the way in which the rabbis make sense of this destruction. In a way, almost everybody there gets blamed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was there, yeah. Were there that many factions and were they that, uh, you know, among the Jews? Yeah. That it would have been, those guys did this. We were fine, but those guys caused the destruction. Did that kind of thing have occurred? Or did that kind of enmity between them? Yes. And we're going to look at actually, um, next session, we're going to see. Uh, we're going to get into some of these fanatics and some of these assassins and folks and their roles within the Jewish community. That's going to be part two of this, is going to be really within the Jews. Um, like I said, sorry, for those who uh, came in, I just wanted to let you know this is the beginning of a three-part series on this. So we'll be continuing this whole narrative about the temple um, through a couple of different sessions, looking at both the Jews and the Romans, as well as the Jews and other Jews. So you're right to pick up on the sort of uh, fractious nature of the community at that time, the sort of factions that were there. You're absolutely right to be aware of that. Other questions or thoughts before we press on? Okay, who wants to pick up? The emperor's response, or the king, however you want to drush that. <laughs> he went and said to the emperor, the Jews are rebelling against you. The emperor said, how can I tell? Barkhamsa said to him, offer them a sacrificial animal and see if they will sacrifice it. So the emperor sent with him a calf for sacrifice. While on the way, Barkhamsa made a blemish on its upper lip, or as some say, on the white of its eye, in a place where we Jews counted a blemish, but they, Romans, do not. Okay, let's just take that much. Questions? Is it pretty clear what happened here? Yeah. Okay, that would be a first, wouldn't it? <laughs> so, Barkhamsa sets the whole thing up. He sets a trap for the for the rabbis. He says, yeah, send this sacrificial animal. You want to know how I know the Jews are rebelling against you? Send them a sacrificial animal. As soon as the emperor turns it over to him, he marks it in a way that, A, it, we don't, it's not clear that the emperor saw him doing it, and B, it's not clear that the Romans would have even been aware that that mark would have made it impure or unfit for sacrifice. So are we to assume that he has magical powers? Barkhamsa. Yeah. Say more. Because I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, I guess he could draw a blemish on a lip, but I'm not so sure about the white of the eye, but just that it seemed to be like sort of magically. He could cut its lip. Yeah. yeah, he could have cut its lip or poked its eye. Oh. The um, magic thing is a question because we do see some of these characters in some of these stories using magic in ways that are acceptable or forbidden, so it's certainly an interesting question. Um, I need magic here, though. But as Tom points out, this might not have, he might not have even needed magic to uh, mark the calf such that uh, it would have been unfit for the Jews, but not the Romans. So the Romans might not have even been aware of this. So Bar Comte has laid a trap. Questions, responses? 
Wow, this might be the clearest sentence or two paragraph we've ever had in this in this class. All right, who wants to pick it up? Getting toward the big finish. <clears throat> Okay, we'll just take that much before that last I mean, sentence. One question that yeah. pops up, of course, is how did they know that Bar Kamsa put the blemish on the cow? Good question. Um, how did they know that Bar Kamsa put the blemish on there? Uh, this again gets into what does your movie version look like? Yeah, if somebody's watching it, the movie version. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, very good. Um, he brought that. Well, it could be a little kid in the boat running the it could be the servant, yeah. or it could be that Bar Kamsa was the one who brought the calf, yeah, and they were yeah. waiting for it. They knew that Bar Kamsa was a problem. They were waiting for him to go do something bad. Um, there are a lot of ways to sort of read it, but either way, they do seem to know what's coming down the pipe. They seem well aware. Yeah. Um, go ahead. This is just a little further on. Mm-hmm. So rabbis are proposing to kill somebody. Whatever happened to that, thou shall not kill. And aren't they supposed to be, you know, you guys supposed to be up there? <laughs> aren't we supposed so to be so pious and not trying to kill people? Yeah. Uh, great question. So, uh, killing is permitted in warfare under certain circumstances. It is, Judaism is not a tradition that is totally, um, what's the word I'm looking for, pacifist. Um, that there are certain circumstances under which you're permitted to kill. Under rabbinic Judaism, um, you can kill someone who is classified as a rodef, some a pursuer. Um, so there's a whole interesting chain of halachot, of Jewish law, about the circumstances under which you can kill somebody, essentially in self-defense. Um, what about traitors? That's a good question, too. Well, that's what he's saying. No, I know, but, but yeah. is, is there something about them? I'm sure there is. I would have to go look and see exactly what you find on traitors, because what's interesting is that following this destruction of Jerusalem is the end of Jewish sovereignty in the land, yeah. essentially. And so the ability to execute a traitor, um, it's not clear that they would have had that same kind of ability. Uh, now, there's a whole, whole lot all about um, heretics and apostates and other kinds of betrayers like that, but I don't think this is quite what we're talking about here. So um, I would probably slice it rather than traitor. If you're looking for rabbinic justification, I would look at, can you say, can you accuse Bar Kamsa as being a rodef, a pursuer in this way? That's the question. That's how I would probably slice it rabbinically. Um, but this question of him as traitor to the people... I think you're right to ask that too, particularly in our context. And so, so Rabbi Zechariah then says, right? Is yes. The person who puts a blemish is that worthy of being put to death? He sort of questions the rabbi. Yeah. And then they don't. 
So if they had, maybe he shouldn't have been so nice. He, he, like he shouldn't have shown that humility. Somebody read that last uh, sentence for yeah. us. We'll just take it to the end, and then we'll discuss it. Right, thus, uh, Rabbi Yochanan said, Through the humility of Rabbi Zechariah, our house has been destroyed, our sanctuary burned, and we ourselves exiled from our land. Okay. So, they had a few choices here. One, they could have offered the sacrifice not to offend the government. But then the question that um, Rabbi Zechariah ben Avkulo says is, Really? People are going to say that you all are sacrificing impure and unclean animals. You are violating the rules of the entire sacrificial system, the system that dictates our relationship with God. So he calls, uh, so he says, well, you can't do that. So then they think, all right, well, what if we kill Bar Kamsa? And again, Rav Zechariah says, really? A person who blemishes a sacrificial animal is obligated is uh, liable for the death penalty? That's a capital offense. Yeah, he's like, really? Is that a capital offense now? Um, thus, through the humility of Reb Zechariah, all of this was destroyed. With the translation, humility seems like the wrong word. Yeah. Okay. Is there, yeah, in, in the translation, were there other options? Um, I could go back and look, but I remember another option was pie- piety. Um, he's doing it kind of to the letter of the law. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, he seems to be looking at this in very hard-edged ways. Go ahead, Carol and or Jill or whichever. Right. So now Carol is taking it where I wanted to go. Back to that first sentence. Wait, so what do you say? I was just looking at that. What do you say? What illustrates the verse, happy is the man who always fears, but he who hardens his heart falls into evil. Who was hardened here and who was fearful? I think Barcomso was hardened. Okay. Certainly one possibility. Barkamsa was the one with the hardened heart who fell into evil. One possibility. Ah, could it be the rabbis who, you mean the ones who were at the party but didn't say anything? Okay. But, but then also the ones who, who, who were going to uh, put Barkamsa to death also. So maybe the ones who plotted to kill Barkamsa were the ones who were, hard, who were hardened of heart. Now we have another idea over here. Could the hardening of heart actually be um, Rav Zacharia? Could he be the one with the hardened heart? It seemed like he was not wanting to do anything related to death. So that, to me, would not be hardening of heart. Well, he, yeah. Was Rav Zacharia at the party? Good question. Hmm. What was the question? Was Rav Zacharia at the party? I also, don't have an answer for you. We don't know. And I wonder is, yeah. does the Talmud put this forward as a, a historical event, or does it put it forward as, as fantasy? Excellent question. Is the Talmud put this forward as historical event, or is this metaphor or fantasy? Uh, neither. I want to suggest that the Talmud is playing in a realm that... I want to suggest they're talking about memory rather than history. History is really a pretty contemporary idea, sort of a post-enlightenment academic idea. Um, 
this all predates even just the idea of history. They're telling stories. They're sharing their memory. They're sharing what they remember and what they have. So I want to encourage us to think of it less in the realm of hard and fast history and more as in they are telling the story of their people. Now, go ahead. Wait, wait, wait a minute. I, I, I kind of disagree with you. Okay, please, jump in. Saying that history is such a new idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, Homer wrote history. It's been proven. Um, and and uh, uh, whoever wrote the Tanakh mm-hmm. wrote history. Well, Josephus fact, they sometimes wrote two. Josephus did too, absolutely. I was going to mention it. Okay. But, but also wrote history of this time. Yes. Also, uh, um, uh, whoever the authors were of the Tanakh wrote history, and they were careful enough to sometimes give two versions of it. Sometimes. It might have happened this way, and it might have happened that way. Sometimes they wrote history, sometimes they did not. There's an awful lot that we do not believe happened from Tanakh. But, so what I would say is that I don't think they were... I don't think any of those people set out necessarily... Josephus is an interesting exception to this, and we can get into him. Philo 2 potential, potentially. The rabbis, I don't think, are writing history, even though I think some of what they write is historically accurate. That's how I would characterize the Tanakh and the writers of, um, of Hebrew Bible. Is even in the places where what they write has historical veracity to it, I don't think they're setting out uh, with this endeavor of writing history. I think they're executing sacred memory rather than history, even where we do get historical overlay. Starting in about the Book of Kings someplace, we start getting historical verification where uh, surrounding kingdoms describe the same events, so it sort of historically corroborates some of what happens. But it's a little murky whatever happened with King David and King Solomon. Um, and then it's... I'll put it like this. Most historians don't think that the Exodus ever happened. Um, David Wolpe stood up and... Rabbi Wolpe stood up and said that at one point, so if he can say it, I'll say it here. Um, and I, if you're interested, after this class, I can tell you what the contemporary, the most contemporary theories are about where the Israelites came from, but it wasn't Egypt. But that's all a little bit of a digression from where we are. Um, so maybe I'll talk for a few minutes after class. But I want to tell... Now, since Tom brought us there, let's go into a little bit of history. Um, so... And we'll come back to this question of who is hard uh, of heart. I want to continue with that and maybe end with that. But um, just for context, the first Jewish-Roman war called the Great Revolt, also by rabbinic tradition, Hamered Hagadol, um, was the first of three major rebellions by the Jews of the Jayan province against the Roman Empire. Uh, it began with the riots of 66. This is Josephus' telling, the big historians. Do you all know who Josephus is? So I was, Josephus is a fascinating guy. Yosef ben Maritiahu was his actual born name, and he was appointed during this conflict. Uh, he was a military commander in the Galilee. When the Romans came through, he surrendered his military command. He was truly a traitor. And what he did was basically betray everybody who was commanding, and he betrayed his own Jewish Identity. He shed his name, uh, Yosef ben Maritiahu, and went by Flavius Josephus. He was a turncoat through and through. And what he did then was march along with the Roman camp and document the Romans' destruction of the Judean province in the subsequent war. That's who Josephus was. 
Now we know that yeah, Josephus. Historically, yes, that that part we have. That part we have, yeah, historical evidence for. Now, what I will say is that his history, he tells Bonagid history. Um, there's a lot of it that's not true. We're pretty positive. Um, and then there's questions about other pieces, but his is one of the only accounts of that era. So it's certainly a worthwhile voice to have at the table, even with even if we doubt some of the true historical veracity of it. It's a pretty pro-Roman account. Yes, he he was a turncoat pretty through and through, and is very much glorifying the whole Roman piece. Um, according to Josephus, the riots in 66 began uh, with unrest in Caesarea, further north, with all of these Greeks. Uh, sacrificing birds in front of a local synagogue to their gods or whatever. Um, the Roman garrison didn't intervene, which had been their long-standing tradition, and thus the tensions mounted. In reaction, one of the Jewish, uh, the temple clerks of the great temple in Jerusalem, Eliezer ben Hanania, um, ceased accepting sacrifices um, to give on, to make on behalf of the Romans. So this piece of cutting off the sacrifice uh, jives with what Josephus tells us as well. So there may be some truth in that. In response to ceasing any of the prayers or sacrifices for the Romans and accepting them at the temple, um, the Roman governor of the province sent uh, the Roman garrison to take money from the temple as tribute. And uh, in response, the city broke into open revolt. Um, the whole thing sort of spiraled wildly out of control and all of these militias formed in the countryside and killed a lot of the Roman garrisons. Um, <coughs> the whole thing blew wide open. and uh, like the Boston Tea Party. Yeah, not unlike the Boston Tea Party. Um, not unlike the Boston Tea Party at all, actually. It's a very interesting piece. So uh, in response, Judean nationalists uh, took up arms and basically overran the Roman garrison in Jerusalem, lynched them all, um, and the Romans surrendered uh, in 66. Uh, Naturally, of course, the Roman Empire doesn't take things like this sitting down, and so you know that they are coming back with a vengeance and they are coming back for blood. And ultimately, they wind up laying siege to Jerusalem. Um, They ultimately conquer Jerusalem and destroy the temple in the year 70. Um, That pretty much mostly the end of that Jewish revolt. Um, There are going to be two more wars in 115 through 117, and then, of course, the famous Bar Kokhva revolt that we get in 132 to 135. Um, That's the one that touches on the Rabbi Akiva story. Rabbi Akiva is right at the center of that drama, but Mm -hmm. that's even after the temple's been destroyed. Excellent question. No, Masada's in this one, actually. In the first one? Yes. Masada is going to fall just a couple of years after this. Um, one of these groups of fighters, one of the extremist groups, uh, manages to take Masada and hold it. This Masada was the uh, summer, uh, sorry, the winter palace of Herod, um, King Herod, who ended the Hasmonean dynasty. Herod was like three, uh, no, he's later than that. I don't know. He was in the uh, last centuries BCE. I forget exactly which one, but I do remember that he sort of, when he came to power, he executed all of the remaining Hasmonean dynasty. They were the ones put into control by the Maccabean revolt. So he put a firm stop to that group. And his uh, reign and his appointing of other people and governors and such sort of lays the groundwork for these events. Um, But anyway, those uh, Jewish fighters, some group of... uh, 
pretty hardliners. Um, goes out to Masada, and the story is that Eliezer Ben, um, I think it's Ben Yair, I believe is his name. Uh, they have this siege there. The Romans, because they can't break the siege, they build a path, a ramp up the side of the mountain to wheel their siege engines up. And rather than be taken alive, the story is that all of the Jewish defenders kill themselves the night before the Romans overtake. So Masada is just a couple of years after this, um, after the whole thing is pretty much wrapped up. So it isn't part of the Bar Kokhba? No. Betar, the fall of Betar was the end of Bar Kokhba. Um, that story of the final defenders um, at the city of Betar, which is like now it's you know still a city in Israel. Um, but that was the sort of their last stand. That was that story. And we could touch upon that next time too if we want. But um, so that's the actual history is that uh, it's not clear that, yeah, I'll put it like this, Josephus doesn't have anything to say about Kamsa or Bar Kamsa or anything. But he does say that um, the whole thing was sparked by the rejection of these uh, sacrifices by the Romans. So we get that piece sort of overlaid. So I want to ask again. Yeah. Did I get a question? Yeah. Go ahead. I have. They, they say there are no stupid questions, but here's a stupid question. <laughs> uh, uh, Talmud. Yes. The Tanakh is what I read with you and others on Saturday morning. Actually, the Torah specifically within the Tanakh. Um, that's right. All right, what's the Torah specifically? The Tanakh. I get confused with Torah. I'm using Tanakh and then Talmud and, and Midrash. And, and, and Talmud and Midrash, those are all the very beginnings of rabbinic Judaism, the first post-biblical writings. I'm not going to recap all of that because we did some of that at the beginning. Okay, um, but Tanakh, in a word, is an acronym for Torah. That's the T in it. The Nun, the N in Tanakh, is Nevi'im, so it's the prophets. And the Ch is the Kaf. It's uh, Ketuvim. So those are the three things that make up the Hebrew Bible. The Torah, the prophets, and the writings. The prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the 12 minor prophets, etc., etc. The writings are Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Psalms. So all of that together is the Tanakh. I say that specifically we do Torah because we're pretty much in that lectionary cycle of reading the Parsha of the week. We're not really going into um, Nach out of Tanakh, um, save for the one exception here and there. So that's just a quick rundown of those different pieces. So back to our story here. I want to return to that question that Carol took us to. What illustrates the verse, happy is the man who always fears, but he who hardens his heart falls into evil? Who is the hardliner here? Zachariah. Okay, that's certainly one of them, one possibility. Who else? Okay. Who grabs him and throws him out. Absolutely. I think that's very much a possibility. I'm trying to figure out who is the happy, who is the man, happy is the man who always fears. There's nobody here that's happy. (laughs) (laughs) Ain't nobody in this story happy. (laughs) But at the end, he was the one who, well, he was fearful of putting him to death. That would be a, maybe that would be a bad thing to happen to him. But he wasn't fearful of the consequences of, of not having done the sacrifice. I was going to say something about consequences, too. That, you know, the rabbis didn't say something, and the certain man kicked Barkamsa out, and Barkamsa did the blemish, and then Zaharia 
said, well, what about this and what about that? Like, everybody made choices and there were consequences and unintended consequences. And, I mean, it has nothing to do with anything except everybody made certain choices and nobody expected the temple to fall. Who, who here is anxious Maybe Zechariah is anxious. Good question, too. I'm reminded hearing you talk, Jill, about this. If anyone has seen the Will Ferrell movie Anchorman, after that giant gang fight they have with all the hand grenades and such that come out, and Will Ferrell says, well, well, that escalated quickly. (laughs) (laughs) I think that line very much captures sort of this trajectory that we're on. When I ask who is the hardliner here, in some ways you could even say who isn't the hardliner in this story? Who isn't the extremist? Right, and who is... Who's the happy one? Like, nobody. So. Maybe the emperor. Oh, the emperor's going to be pretty unhappy, too, um, because what we're going to get, and we'll get into this, actually, in our subsequent uh, readings of this, parts two and three actually get into, there's going to be a Roman civil war coming up. The emperor is going to be killed. There's going to be a famous civil war in which we, they famously refer to the year of four emperors a really violent um, upheaval of Rome itself, and some of the characters in this drama are going to play central roles in that conflict as well. So we're going to go way big picture in terms of major upheaval all over the world. Jews are the canary in the coal mine again? Interesting question, are they? (laughs) Um, The one character who nobody has picked on yet... No. Servants. Well, that's true. Nobody's picked on the servant yet. Rav, Rav Yochanan. Rav Yochanan, who poses this question at the beginning, and then look at the end. Thus, Rav Yochanan says, through the humility of Rav Zechariah, our house has been burned, our sanctuary, our, sorry, our house has been destroyed, our sanctuary burned, and we ourselves exiled from this land. Yochanan is, is much later, isn't he? Spoiler alert. The next couple of sessions... Rabbi Yochanan is going to be a central player in the whole drama. Um, he's just sort of a narrator. Here he's just narrating. He's sort of teeing us up for the subsequent pieces. But I love reading this piece, even though this is just sort of teeing us up for the destruction to come, that we know it's coming, we know it's leading to it, and we see this, this isn't even brought about the destruction itself yet. This basically just triggered the beginning of the Great Revolt. This is basically that spark that lit off that war that lasted from 66 to 70. So ostensibly, we haven't even gotten that far into it yet. We're just seeing the opening strokes of it. Um, yeah, go ahead. No offense, but it just seems like this should not have caused such destruction. <laughs> not being invited to a party. Not being invited to a party. Like should shouldn't have been such a big deal, but... That's one comment. The other comment I have is, I know we've talked about Zaharia having a hardened heart, mm-hmm. but he, I'm posing the question, mm-hmm. could he also have been the happy one? Who was fearful. He was fearful. He kept the boundaries. Okay, we don't slot, you know, we don't sacrifice blemished animals. We don't kill someone just because they blemished an animal. I'm following the law. 100%. You can absolutely read Reb Zachariah as the happy one, too. Um, 
What's interesting is that because Reb Zachariah, yes, his humility or piety or however you want to drash that does bring about this great destruction, but it keeps the system intact. It keeps the sacrificial system, the connection with God intact, and it keeps their legal system and their values about when it is that they can execute somebody, have a capital offense. It keeps that intact too. So in the midst of real destruction, tremendous cataclysm, um, I would suggest that proportionally probably greater than the Shoah in terms of the destruction of these Jews, the Israelites, of the people there and their life and their home and their way of life. This is the greatest destruction the people has ever seen. Um, he keeps an awful lot intact in the middle of everything being destroyed. So in his humility, he was actually brave. That's one way of reading it. He was also hard line. He was very hard line with his piety or his humility. He was unyielding, un flinching, uncompromising. And why was uh, to me, the, the last sentence does not sound like Rabbi Yochanan thought that that, <laughs> that, that humility was a good thing. Uh-huh. Rabbi Yochanan, yeah, he talks about, wow, that's oh, so... He's humble, but look what... <laughs> his, you know. He was plenty pious, but who's there to you know, pick up all of his wonderful piety if the entire thing is destroyed, if you bring down the walls around it. Well, we, we, uh, last uh, year, I guess it was, when it, uh, we had another uh, passage that we studied mm-hmm. where the, the guys went into the cave. And, yes, Shimon Bar Yochai. I mean, it sounded like this same kind of thing. You had this excess of piety that didn't turn out well. So this is a major tension in the rabbinic imagination, is this tension between holiness and piety and being able to sequester yourself off from current events, from the profanity and vulgarity of the day-to-day life in the streets. Um, How much can you do that? How much can you set yourself apart from it? Um, The Aseans, the Qumran sect, uh, they're a very interesting example of a group that sort of took it to its far extreme and they marched off into the desert and we don't know what happened to them but it was the end of them Um, we get these examples with these folks as well Uh, we're going to see the tension in the coming sessions uh, with the groups that want to arrive at some kind of peace or negotiate or try and smooth things out with the empire with Rome and the ones who want to fight with the zealots and the Sicarii, the assassins and the Birioni, the thugs, the militia, um, and then the rabbis or the Sadducees or groups that wanted to try and keep this together. Um, we're going to see major tension with all of that. But you're right. There's this tension that we get in other stories about how pious is too pious, how hardline is too hardline. Um, it's the right question to ask. Go ahead. Why did no other rabbi question your... Uh Zaharia. Why did they let it stand, Why you're saying? Did st- he made a quest- posed two questions. Nobody said anything. That suggests to me that no one had anything to say. That the rest of them thought that he was right. Because again, think about what we said about Talmud earlier. It preserves every dissenting opinion. It preserves every argument that there is. The suggestion or the implication here was no is that there wasn't an argument. If no one else tried to fight him on it, they weren't arguing. But clearly a rabbi from a later era was willing to 
I don't know how, if you want to say critique or condemn him for it or even cast him, uh, cast the blame of this on him. Um, and then the question is, did Rabbi Yochanan think he was right? Does Rabbi Yochanan think that think Reb that Zacharia... Oh, that was to be continued. It's to be continued. Um, and I'll tell you that it's not even so clear in the continuation of this story. But um, we'll wrap it up here that in a time where there are lots of hardliners, lots of people drawing lines in the sand and determining mine is the only course of action and this is the only way to live in this world and uh, the only way to treat other people or deal with larger powers or other issues going on, um, I think the rabbis are telling us that it pays to be a little bit cautious when everybody around you is hardening their hearts, when everybody around you is coming out as a hardliner of one stripe or another, whether that's the kinds of hurt feelings that we bear toward one another or how it is that we think about our bigger systems of politics and government. All of this comes into play here. Uh, but the rabbis do seem pretty clear that being the hardliner can be a dangerous thing, both on the interpersonal level as well as the grander, the broader, the political levels. Um, so we'll end with that, and I will look forward to continuing to parts two and three of the destruction of Jerusalem and the rabbis. So thank you all for coming out tonight. Have a great evening.